Last week we talked just briefly about uh, author Ernest Hemingway. We talked about how he grew up in a highly churched town, in a highly churched home, with legalistic parents and grandparents who literally taught him the fear of God because they placed before him uh, a picture of God as an all-consuming fire. Hemingway, as an adult, denied the Christ that he had professed as a child. And he later, as an adult, wrote his own version of the Lord's Prayer. And it went this way, Our nada, which art in nada, nada be thy name. His father went on to commit suicide, and it's reported that his mother once sent him a birthday cake with the gun that his father had used to kill himself, suggesting that he should do the same thing. And as we know, Hemingway did in fact commit suicide, as did one of his brothers and one sister and one granddaughter. I'm not suggesting that everything that happened in Hemingway's life or the decisions that he made in life are his parents' fault. But I am saying this, Hemingway was like the rest of us, every one of us in this room. He was shaped by what his parents passed on to him. And so it makes us pause this morning and ask, what is it that we are passing on to our children, to those around us, because it will have an impact? I want to tell you another story this morning about a different man. This man's name is John Patton. And John Patton was a Presbyterian pastor who left his home and his ministry in Scotland to be a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. Uh, It's a 450-mile stretch of islands in the South Sea uh, between Hawaii and Australia, a little closer to uh, Australia. Twenty years before John landed on those islands, two other missionaries had landed there. And within minutes of stepping foot on the islands, they were killed and cannibalized. So Patton's first four years there were very difficult. Within four months of arriving, his wife died of the fever. uh, And two weeks later, their newborn son died as well. And so John was there alone. He himself suffered from the fever, uh, but survived it with no one to take care of him. His life was constantly constantly threatened by the cannibals who lived on the island and miraculously spared many times. On one occasion, he and his helper Abraham were surrounded by raging natives who kept encouraging one another to be the the first one to strike the first blow. And Patton wrote this about that event. My heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken, that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ, who is all power in heaven and on earth, He rules all nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the savage of the South Seas. On another occasion, surrounded once again by armed natives, he wrote this. I assured them that I was not afraid to die. For at death, my Savior would take me to be with himself in heaven and to be far happier than I had ever been on earth. 
I then lifted up my hands and eyes to the heavens and prayed aloud for Jesus, either to protect me or to take me home to glory, as he saw to be for the best. Where did John Patton get this kind of faith? Where did it come from? At least in his own mind, it was an inheritance passed on to him from his parents. His father had a small room, a closet, to which he would go and pray almost after every meal. And all 11 children, John included, knew where their father was going and what he was doing. Patton wrote this about his father. Though everything else in religion were by some unthinkable catastrophe to be swept out of my memory or blotted from my understanding, my soul would wander back to those early scenes and shut itself up once again in the sanctuary closet. And hearing still still the echoes of those cries to God would hurl back all doubt with the victorious peal. My father walked with God. Why may not I? How much my father's prayers at this time impressed me, I can never explain. Nor could any stranger understand. When on his knees and all of us kneeling around him in family worship, he poured out his whole soul with tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus. And for every personal and domestic need, we all felt as if in the presence of the living Savior and learned to know and love him as our divine friend. He learned from his mother as well. When the potato crop failed in Scotland, their crop included. His mother gathered the children together and said, Oh, my children, love your heavenly father. Tell him in faith and prayer all your needs, and he will supply your wants so far as it shall be for your good and his glory. This is where Patton learned faith. Faith in the presence of Jesus when he was in the presence of cannibals who sought to kill him. This is why he could say, take my life. If it be for my good and God's glory, it will happen. What are we passing on? What are you passing on? To your children, to your grandchildren, to others around you as most important. Because our children and others know what's important to us, not only from the words that we speak, but what they see us doing. And so we're in a lot of different places here this morning. Some of you, many of you, are yet to be parents. And so you can take this as an opportunity to decide right now, what is it? What is it that you want to pass on to your children as really important should God bless you with children? Some of you here are in the thick of it right now. You are raising these little ones. Don't squander the opportunity. You don't have them forever. Some of us here have children who are grown. Others have grandchildren. And we may hear this with just a twinge of regret. Regret for passing on things to our children not as important as the truth of the gospel and the promise of Christ in all things. But here's the good news. It isn't too late, is it? Not for any of us. It's not too late for us to make an exchange, to lay down those things that aren't as as important, and to pick up the things that are. It isn't too late. We're still surrounded by people, old and young. Opportunities still abound to, to pass on to others what's really important. The question is, will we do that? Will we faithfully pass on what's truly important? 
I pray that we will. If you have your Bibles open to Deuteronomy chapter 6, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live, by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Let's pray together. Father, now we ask uh, your blessing on us as we come together to your word. To your word, And we ask, uh, once again, O Spirit of God, that you would be the teacher here this morning. Uh, open our ears to hear your truth, our minds to understand uh, your truth. Our eyes to see, Lord, how we uh, can apply and live out the truths that you teach us this morning. Uh, Open our hearts, warm them with your truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I've told you several times in the past about how one of my children, before this child, they were just learning to talk, how they sang Joy to the World. And this child sang it this way. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare his room. And that's the way the song was sung. And out of the mouths of babes, you and I are convicted because that's the reality of it. Often in our lives, we give the Lord one place, one room, one spot, and we expect him to stay in it. We let the Lord out to play, you know, at worship time, or at Christian education time, or at community group time. But but where is the Lord? Where do we have him when we are at the office, or in the boardroom, or in the classroom, or in the living room, or on the boat, or on the golf course? If Jesus doesn't have an all-pervasive presence, then our lives will never be the flourishing will never be the abundant life that they could be. And again, I don't define abundant by material things. But I I could define it as fearless peace and joy when a cannibal has an arrow pointed at your heart. That's an abundant life. Don't misunderstand me. Jesus as God is omnipresent. We, We cannot shut out his presence. He was leaving the earth. He said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. But you and I can ignore him. And we can shut our ears to his voice when his truth should be speaking to us in the boardroom or in the living room or in the bar room. 
We can resist his spirit when his spirit is so clearly guiding us as to what we should say or or, or what we should do or where we should go. But God has something better for us than that. Uh, A fuller life, a richer life that comes not from sequestering him, but from letting him have this pervasive, permeating presence in our lives. That's what God is after in these verses. Look again in in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 6. It says, These commands that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. See, of course, Moses, when he's speaking to these people, God has revealed himself to them only through his spoken word, through his commandments. All they know about God, even how they interpret the the powerful, mighty works that he has done on their behalf, they only know as God has described himself to them and in the, the things that he requires of them. Because you learn a lot about a person by, by what they require. And so when God says to, to talk about these commandments, it gives people an opportunity to, to think about God, who he is and what he requires of them. And so God says, talk about the commandments when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, relaxing in your living room, talk about God. When it's time to get up and get going, talk about God. And so there's God in the living room. And there's God in the bedroom as you go to sleep at night. And there's God in the kitchen, at the breakfast table, as you begin your day. When you leave home, there is God. From the beginning of your day to the end of your day, talk about God. Now we find this extreme. I know we do. Because whether we admit it or not, there is God stuff in our life and there is fun stuff, you know, or other stuff in our life. And we get through the God stuff in our life, maybe reading a Bible verse at the table, we kind of get through the God stuff, so then we can go and do the fun stuff where perhaps we think God doesn't really belong. But I'll tell you this, and I remind myself of this right now, if you identify an area in your life, If you identify a behavior in your life where you think that God does not belong, guess what? You probably don't belong there either. And that's the truth. Talking about the Word of God, as God tells us in these verses that should be done, it's talking about life. It's talking about the way it should be best lived. Talking about the commands of God in our lives, throughout our lives, reminds us, as it reminds the people of them, of how much God loves them. And how much he's done for them. We see more of the all-pervasiveness that God should have in life. The life of every believer in verse 8. Look there. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. You know, it isn't clear whether God intended this to be literal or metaphorical. But the Jews certainly took it to be literal. And so discoveries have been made that predate uh, the time of Christ of phylacteries, little boxes that contained pieces of parchment with Bible verses written on them. And, And the Jews would take those boxes and tie them to their foreheads and bind them to their hands. They've also discovered mezuzahs, another type of little box that they attached to the door frame of their houses. 
some Jews attached them to every door frame in every room of their house. And these little boxes contain scripture passages as well, particularly this one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So all of these requirements show that God, who is represented by his word, was to permeate every area of life. Tying the word of God to their forehead would remind them that their minds and all the thoughts of their minds belonged to God and were to be governed by the word of God. How many of your thoughts governed by the word of God? Tying the boxes on their hands reminded them that everything to which they put their hands, everything they did in life, the word, all of it was to be governed by the word of God. How much of what you do with your hands, with your life, governed by the word of God? Tying them to the doorframe would remind them that their family and that their home life was to be governed by the word of God and by the God of the word. And so we ask ourselves, how Christ-centered are our homes? Tying the word of God to their gates would remind them as they passed out of that gate every day to take the word of God with them into the community. It must govern every interaction of their lives in their community. How much of your interaction in the community and with the people that you find there, the conversations you have, how infused are they with the truth of the gospel? Words of grace, words of truth. The point is that according to the word of God, it isn't enough just to prepare one room for the Lord. But I get ahead of myself. Let's go back to verse 6. Look in verse 6. Where is the first place the word of God must be? Where? Read it. Heart. The Lord says there, These commandments I give you today are to be upon your hearts. God's word, God's reality must penetrate our hearts. The forehead, external, outward. The hand, external, outward. The doorpost, the gate, external, outward. The heart, where is it? On the inside. And it governs everything that we do on the outside. And that's why God starts with the heart. The other symbols, they're aids that remind us what it is that we are to hide in our heart, as Scripture commands us to do. And so you can't skip number one, the heart, and go on to numbers two, three, four, and five. The head, the hand, the door, the gate. You can't say, well, four out of five, 80%, that's passing. No. But that's what the Jews did. They got all the outward stuff right. They had their phylacteries. They had their mezuzahs. They were painstaking in the production of them. A man had to study for years, meticulously study for years, in order just to be qualified to write the scripture passages that went in the boxes. So outwardly, Everything was precise. Everything was perfect. But that's not what God wanted. That's why Jesus said this in Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. 
You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. See, what God desires is that there be harmony in our lives. Harmony between the outer and the inner. Because if there's not harmony, if there's not a match between the inside and the outside, there can only be legalism and hypocrisy. And the lack of harmony is not harmless. External legalism, it's not harmless. It certainly wasn't harmless as it was passed on to Hemingway. It isn't just a case of a cute, sweet, oh, well, bless their little hearts. They just don't really understand the gospel. No, no, and people are promoting and living in, in, in legalism because the gospel has never penetrated their hearts. People who think that God, think that God is most pleased by their perfect obedience. No, God is most pleased. God is most pleased when we, from our hearts, in great humility, with great thanksgiving, trust in Jesus to do for us what we cannot ever do for ourselves. Strict obedience to a list of rules, it's devastating because it leads to death. Have any of you ever seen the new version of The Count of Monte Cristo that came out a few years ago? Have you seen that movie? The saddest scene to me in that movie is this one. After years of being in prison, Edmund Dantes looks at the floor in his prison cell, the dirt floor, and he sees the dirt begin to erupt a little bit. And he watches as the dirt keeps pushing up, and then there is a hole. And then out of that hole comes a man's head. (laughs) And pretty soon, a man's entire body is standing there, pulling himself up into Edmund Dantes' Uh, prison cell, and it is the priest. Because the priest had calculated the direction that he thought freedom was in. And so year after year after year, he dug and he dug and he dug. What else are you going to do in prison? He tunneled and he tunneled and he tunneled and he tunneled in that direction. And finally, yay, the priest breaks through the ground to what he believed and what he longed would be life and freedom, but instead, what was it? Another prison cell, and that's where he died. He thought he was working toward life and freedom. He was working toward death. And so it is with all of us. Again, as we saw last week in Hebrews 12, if you are headed to Mount Sinai, which at the time of the writing of the New Testament, particularly the book of Hebrews, represented the law, it represented the the externals. If that's where you're headed, if that's where you're pointing other people, then you are sending others to their death because there is no life there because God is not there. He said so. God says, I dwell in Mount Zion, the joyful heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, the place where our sin and our inability to perfectly obey the law of God is covered, sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. There is no life in just tying the word of God to your head or to your hand or to your door or to your gate if it hasn't first penetrated your heart. 
And only you and God, only you and God know if there's harmony between the inside and the outside. Because you know what? You can fool me and I can fool you. And evangelical Christians, we are really good at that. Has the truth penetrated your heart or are you wearing a spiritual wetsuit? Because you know, evangelical Christians, we are. We are emerged, immersed. We are immersed in the truth. Truth from the pulpit. Truth from Christian education. Truth from the books we read. Truth from the community groups. We are immersed in it. But are we wearing that wetsuit? Or are we allowing the truth of God to penetrate our hearts? It's clear from this passage that it's our heart that God is after. And he makes it clear in these verses we've read. In every way, in every area of life, Christ must permeate and be preeminent. You and I know that Jesus came to be the living word of God, which means that now he's to be the center of our lives. He's the one who makes life real. And he's the one who makes our hearts come alive. It's his spirit that ignites the passions of our hearts to think about him, Christ in our minds, who motivates our hands. All I do, I do for Christ, who fills our homes and thrusts us out into the community and all the relationships we have there with the gospel of Christ. You cannot pass on what is not real to you. You can't. And neither can I. We cannot pass on what isn't real to us. And that's what we're called to do. To pass on the reality of Christ to others. Look in verse 7. Impress them, the commandments, on your children. The SV reads, diligently teach your children. And it means to speak the truth over and over and over and over again. But literally, the word means to whet or to sharpen. And it's used over and over again in Scripture to to describe a sword that has been sharpened and is ready to be put to use. And so we should be reminded of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And so it is that you and I were to take the the truth of God, the reality of Christ that has first penetrated right here, our own hearts, and then we go after the other, the hearts of others, our children, others around us with the truth of the gospel that it might penetrate their hearts as well, over and over and over again with our words, yes, but also with our lives. As they see the reality of Christ lived out not just in one room, but in every area of our lives. Look, mom and dad, don't just talk about Jesus in church all day, every day. If we have Christ neatly tucked away in one room, keeping him where he can't interfere in the other areas of our lives, where we don't want him interfering, then what do you truly have to pass on to anyone else that's really significant? Really. Because I know we're working to collect things to pass on. What are you going to pass on that's really important? Money? Maybe. Possessions? Maybe. But they can be gone like that. And then what's up? You can't pass on effectively and convincingly anything about which you are not excited, about which you're not passionate. And we all know that. 
We've all suffered through enough classes with teachers that were so bored, they seemed like they didn't want to be there except to collect a paycheck. We've learned it from parents who say this, and this is my all-time favorite. Don't do as I do, do as I say do. Really? What is up with that? You know, if you don't want to do what you want me to do, then why do you want me to do it? You know, What are you passing on to others? John Patton, our missionary, married again. A much younger woman, and he had more children. Several of them lived to adulthood. And at the end of his life, which was a life well-lived, a life well-spent, a life through whom God extended his kingdom to over 100,000 converts on those uh, islands in the South Seas. John Patton attributed that to the godly heritage that he received from his parents. And then he passed it on. And he wrote this at the end of his life. Let my record, my immovable conviction, that this is the noblest service in which any human being can spend or be spent. And that if God gave me back my life to be lived over again, I would, without one quiver of hesitation, lay it on the altar to Christ, that he might use it as before in similar ministries of love, especially amongst those who have never yet heard the name of Jesus. Nothing that has been endured and nothing that can now befall me makes me tremble. On the contrary, I deeply rejoice when I breathe the prayer that it may please the blessed Lord to turn the hearts of all my children to the mission field and that he may open up their way and make it their pride and joy to live and die in carrying Jesus and his gospel to the heart of the heathen world. Now, I pray that our lives, yours and mine, would make such a difference in our world right now, in our generation. But not just this one, but the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and the generation after that, and the generation after that, because we have diligently, diligently impressed upon and sharpened those around us, those who come after us, with the reality of Christ that's transformed our own lives. But listen... It's not just going to happen. It isn't. You and I have to be intentional about it. Intentional about bringing Christ into every area of our lives. We've got to get rid of the idea. Please, we've got to get rid of the idea that what I'm describing here, that what God is describing here in his word is for the extreme person, for the unusual person. This is the normal Christian life. As God intends it to be lived. Stop looking for ways out of it. Stop trying to relegate Jesus to one room when his presence should pervade every area of our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would make it a reality. That you would pervade every area of our lives. Lord, we know better than not to be honest before you because you know our hearts anyway. And Lord, help us to be honest with each other as well. Perhaps in doing that, Lord, we can encourage each other. We know, we know, Lord, that we don't 
bring you into every area of our lives. We know full well, Lord, that there are things that we do and places that we go that, that we don't want you there with us. And Lord, I pray that by the power of your spirit, when those realities come to our mind, that, that even that w- would cause us to, to pause, to check our words, to check our behavior, to check where it is that we plan to go and what it is that we plan to do, Lord. Because if it's not right for you to be there with us, experiencing it together with us, it's not right for us to be there either. And so move us away from the idea, Lord, that the verses that we read this morning are for some select few, for those who are headed to the mission field, for those who are headed to full-time Christian service. Lord, forbid us from putting ourselves in a different category as somehow excluded from this command to think about you when we rise up through our day and when we go to bed at night, to talk about you in our living room, in our bedroom, in our kitchen table. It's for all of us here right now. And so I pray, Lord, that your spirit uh, would remind us of that. Uh, And give us just a taste, Lord, of the joy, uh, the joy of the life lived in this way. Lord, if we think this is a bad thing or a negative thing, oh, God has to be with me. No, we're, we're thinking wrongly of you and the joy that we should have in you because of the gospel. So teach us that. Transform our hearts with it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.